Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The story Moses on, he gets thrown over the ship. Verse 12 of this same chapter. He said to them, that is those in control of the boat, pick me up and throw me into the sea and the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. And do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. And the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. In chapter 2, Jonah prays. He's down in the mouth. He's in the belly of the great whale. It's a whale of a tail. And in chapter 3, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in extent. Let's stop right there. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you've given us a short amount of time left tonight to consider a prophecy, a, a prophet, one who at first failed to take the job of his prophecy in obedience. Then he finally did it. And he brought a very short, straightforward prophecy to a city that would have been doomed to destruction were you not so merciful. We read more than that about a man who experienced your mercy, the prophet himself. Not only was he unmerciful, but he learned just how merciful you are, not only to a wicked city, but to a prodigal prophet one who ran from God, but a loving God who wouldn't let him go. Tonight, Lord, I pray that your peace would flood our lives as we discover your mercy for us, that you love us the way we are, but you love us too much to leave us that way. And so you are after us because you know what's best for us though we may run in many different directions, it's my prayer that all of us tonight would learn to run directly into your arms for your care and for your commission rather than away from you and your will. 
I pray, Lord, that Your Word would speak on a number of different levels to all of us tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you ever go to England, you'll notice a sign on restroom doors, and it's not restroom, it's WC, which means water closet. And unless you're familiar with that, you'd walk by it and you wouldn't know what it was, and you'd go ask the maitre d' or the owner of the establishment, where's the restroom? And they would know Americans well enough to go, oh, you mean the WC? And they'd point it out to you. Well, there was an English girl who was moving to Switzerland, and she was going to school there. She wanted to rent a room, and uh, she was going to start her fall semester in Switzerland. So she went there, visited the place, found a room for rent, And she left, packed up her stuff in England, ready to move to Switzerland. But she remembered as she was packing up her stuff and getting her toiletries together that she hadn't seen a WC anywhere on the property. So she wrote the schoolmaster back and said, I noticed there was no WC near my room or attached to the room that I'm renting. Is there one available close by? The Swiss schoolmaster, not being English, didn't know what WC meant. WC, WC, what could that exactly mean? The schoolmaster went to the parish priest and they put their heads together to try to figure out what WC meant. And the only thing they could come up with with that initial WC was West Side Chapel. So they wrote a letter back to this English gal moving to Switzerland wanting a restroom, WC, And they wrote a letter back about the WC, but they meant Westside Chapel. My dear madam, I take great pleasure in informing you that the WC is situated nine miles from the house (laughs) in the center of a beautiful grove of pine trees surrounded by lovely grounds. It's capable of holding 229 people, and it's open on Sundays and Thursdays only. As there are a great number of people expected during the summer months, I suggest that you come early. Although usually there's plenty of standing room. Now this is an unfortunate situation, especially if you're in the habit of going regularly. It may be of some interest to you to know that my daughter was married in the WC and it was there that she met her husband. I can remember the rush there was for seats. There were 10 people to every seat usually occupied by one. It was wonderful to see the expression on their faces. You will be glad to hear that a good number of people bring their lunch and make a day of it. Well, those who can afford to go by car arrive just on time. I would especially recommend your ladyship go on Thursdays when there is a piano accompaniment. The acoustics are excellent and even the most delicate sounds can be heard everywhere. The newest addition is a bell donated by a wealthy resident of the district. It rings every time a person enters. A bazaar is to be held to provide for plush seats for all since the people feel it is long needed. My wife is rather delicate, so she cannot attend regularly. It's almost been a year since she went last, and naturally it pains her very much not to be able to go more often. I shall be delighted to reserve the best seat for you where you shall be seen by all. And for the children, there is a special day and a time so that they do not disturb the elders, hoping to be of some service to you, the schoolmaster. 
You can imagine the shock on that lady's face when she read that letter because it was the same wording, different meaning. Same words, different message. Jonah was a prophet of God who was used to giving messages to people. Of all people that should be crystal clear on what the word of the Lord is, it should have been Jonah. Yet the word of the Lord came to him, this prophet who was supposed to speak for the Lord, but the signal was somehow mixed up in Jonah's own mind. The Lord said, go. And if you were to just stop right there, Go. Okay, go. Well, that could mean a lot of things. There's a lot of directions to go in. So God clarified it. Go to Nineveh. Maybe Jonah thought, God didn't say when I should go to Nineveh. I think first I'll take a princess cruise in another direction. I could go to Nineveh eventually. The message was clear from God, but it didn't get received clearly in Jonah's mind And the message didn't get out to Nineveh at first. A group of researchers wanted to find out how different people think, how they process information. So this team of researchers asked different people from different walks of life to come in for an interview, and they would listen to their answers and grade them and make notes. The first guy that came in was an engineer. And they asked him, Simple question, two plus two equals what? The engineer said, well, if you mean in precise terms, and I suppose that you do, two plus two always equals four, period, he said. Researchers said, very interesting, and they took their notes down, thanked him, and dismissed him. The second one to come in was an architect. Sir, we have a simple question for you. Two plus two equals what? And he said, well, there are several possibilities here. Two plus two does equal four, but three plus one also equals four. Two and a half and one and a half also equals four. So you have to choose the right option. They said, very interesting. And they wrote their notes down and dismissed him. The third one to come in the room was a lawyer. Sir, we have a simple question for you. What does two plus two equal? The lawyer looked around the room very furtively, asked if they could please close the door, and then he leaned into the panel and said, well, you tell me, what would you like it to be? (laughs) I know there's always lots of lawyer jokes, right? Lawyers get the brunt of lots of jokes. And that's just the point. They shouldn't be the brunt of all the jokes. If there's one group of people that should be keeping the law, it ought to be lawyers. And that's the point here. If there's one group of people that should hear the message clearly and obey it immediately, it ought to be a prophet of God, a spokesperson, a preacher. And if we take it down to our level, if there's one group of people that should have the message from God down pat in their own hearts and live it and speak it clearly and boldly, it ought to be the Christian, the follower of Christ. So it's important that we hear the message and that we obey it so that we might deliver it. 
according to the will of the Lord. We're not going to look at the entire book of Jonah, although, you know, there's only 48 verses in the entire book. 1,328 words, if you count them in this translation. It's a short book, yet it's packed full of lessons. If you're the type of individual who likes to run from God, this book is for you. If when God tries to get a hold of you and give you a commission and you're a little bit hesitant to take that commission, the book of Jonah is perfect for you. If you're the kind of a person who feels like you're a failure, that you tried something in the past for the Lord and you've fallen on your face and you're wondering, could God ever use me again? This is a perfect book for you. If you're the kind of a person who has trouble getting along with other people, or if you're bigoted toward a people group and prejudiced toward them, Book of Jonah is a perfect book for you. But tonight we want to look at just some of the verses in the first chapter and then also in uh, the third chapter tonight. And uh, that will be our text. First of all, the name Jonah. You know what it means? A dove. A dove. A dove in ancient times was the epitome, the prime example of gentleness, of peace. And uh, when I found that out, I laughed. And I think I laughed out loud because I knew Jonah's personality. He was anything but a dove, anything but peaceful, anything but gentle. He was hard-hearted and hard-headed and stubborn and not compliant but defiant. So here's a guy named Dove who actually is like a stone, but God is going to take him and wants to work through him to bring him to a place where eventually he is compliant, but he wants it to be from his heart. Interesting thing about Jonah. Of all of the prophets that I've read in the Old Testament, as far as I know, no other prophet is more, well, bigoted than Jonah. No other Old Testament Jewish prophet is more Jewish than Jonah, more um, nationalistic. And yet, as Jewish as he was and devoted to his Jewish cause, no other prophet I've read about in the Old Testament had more extensive ministry to non-Jews than Jonah. Very interesting. And I, I think the lesson is this. God loves to take what is our deficit and make it our asset. That which we would say, well, that's a weakness. God, why would you choose a guy who hates anybody unless they're Jewish and make them go preach to non-Jewish people? Especially the ardent enemies of the Jews, the Ninevites. Because God loves to take our weaknesses and turn them into strengths so that we aren't trusting in our own resources and our own strengths. It's the style of God. There were four women. They were playing bridge in a retirement home. So you know they're up there in years. Through the front door walked an elderly gentleman. These four ladies playing bridge all perked up. The first one asked a simple question. What's your name? He told him his name. Second one said, where are you from? He said, well, before this, I lived in San Quentin. I was in prison for 20 years. I served my time. The third lady said, what were you in for? He said, I murdered my wife. 
And the fourth one sat up and smiled and said, oh, then you're single. <laughs> what would be seen as a deficit, she saw as an asset. <laughs> oh, the wife's gone. You're single. Well, God isn't in that business, but he is in the business of taking what would be considered our deficit and making it an asset. Now, th this evening, there's four things I want us to consider in this short story. First of all, the man of Jonah, the mission that God sends him on, the mistake that Jonah makes, and the misery that he finds himself in. The man, the mission, the mistake, and the misery. Well, my Bible says the book of Jonah. So I take it that there was a literal guy named Jonah, and this is his story, but not everybody agrees with me. You see, there's a lot of people who have trouble with the book of Jonah. It's such a weird story. I can't swallow that story of the, the whale and the whole thing. And So, in the academic world, there are some who relegate the book of Jonah to mythology. It would be on the level of the Greek myths, fanciful stories that Jewish people made up to tuck their kids into bed at night and tell them stories about how great their God was and how great He was to the Jewish nation. Pure mythology, they say. Others don't go that far. Some in the academic world, in the commentary world, will say that the book of Jonah is an allegory. It's not a literal story. It's an allegory. That is, it's a, it's a way to talk about the history of the Jews. And so what they'll say is that um, the whale represents... Nebuchadnezzar, the great churning sea, represents the Babylonian force and the tumult that was going on at that time in the world. Jonah represents the Jewish nation, and so it's an allegory of how the Jews were swallowed up by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. It's an allegory. Other people will say the book of Jonah is a dream. didn't happen, but Jonah was on a boat. He was going to a certain place called Tarshish, he fell asleep and he dreamed all of this up. You know, some late night falafel with onions that, that caused him to dream and he dreamt it and it was written out in this book form. Except, and I have a problem with all of those viewpoints, and here's why. The way it is written, it is written in simple, didactive, narrative form as any story would be told. Nothing in the story gives it away that it would be an allegory or a myth or a dream because there's people named, there's places named, uh, there's descriptions given, there's conversations that take place. It's a simple narrative. But let's just end the argumentation. The Lord Jesus himself said, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man shall be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. He predicated the literalness of his resurrection on the literalness of what happened to Jonah and the whale. So, if Jonah is not a real story, then Jesus Christ is a liar. And if he lied about that, then maybe he lied about other stuff. So if you throw out Jonah and you tell me I take Jesus seriously, I'm going to have problems with you. Oh, well, you know, Jesus was accommodating to the ignorance of his time. Really? So you're saying he deliberately deceived people. Okay, would you do me a favor? Would you keep a marker here and turn to the New Testament book of Matthew for just a moment? Matthew chapter 12. 
I want to take you to the text where Jesus mentions Jonah. Matthew, the 12th chapter. An interesting conversation Jesus has with a group of Pharisees. Matthew 12, verse 38, we'll start. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and he said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Look at the next verse. The queen of Sheba, we know that she existed, of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Now, did you notice that in the same text as Jonah mentioned by Jesus, Jesus also mentions two group of historical figures, the men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba. We know that there were men who lived in Nineveh, and we knew there, no, there was historically the queen of Sheba. So are you telling me that Jesus puts Jonah, who's really not a real person, it's just an allegory and just a myth, in the same camp as the men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba and his literal resurrection, but he really wasn't a true prophet and never existed? See, that's goofy. That's dumb. That's not academic. That's stupid. Listen how it would sound if Jonah were mythological or allegorical. It would sound like this. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the mythological prophet Jonah. For just as the mythological Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the mythological fish, so the literal son of man will be really three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The real, literal men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this literal, real generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of mythological Jonah. And indeed, a greater than mythological Jonah is here. No one does that. That's just ridiculous. So, the words of Jesus Christ Himself tell us that this man was real and there are lessons to be gleaned from it. So, that's the man, Jonah. Let's look at his mission. The word of the Lord, verse 1, Jonah 1, the word of the Lord, by the way, 104 times in the Bible, in the Old Testament, you read this phrase, the word of the Lord came, and it came to a literal person. Twice in this book, that phrase shows up here and in chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, here's the mission, get up or arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. God told Jonah to get up and go. I wonder if you ever ask yourself when you read verses like that, how did God speak to Jonah? Was it an audible voice? Was it a dream? Was it a vision? Was it an angelic messenger? Was it an impression of the heart? 
And we ask that question, and I hope we do, because it leads us to a follow-up question. Does God still speak today? Which leads us to another question. How can I tell God's voice from my impression or my mother's tapes being played over and over again in my conscience? How can I tell what is the voice of God? Those are good questions to ask. You may not always have satisfactory answers, but it shows that you care that God speaks to your heart. There's a book that I have read called Knowing the Face of God by Tim Stafford. It's one of the best I've read. It really answered for me a lot of questions. Listen to his own personal struggle. One night, I walked for miles asking God again and again to simply show Himself to me. I shouted to heaven to shatter the silence. I didn't want to work up a feeling of God. I wanted God to break in on me. He did not. He did not. I heard no voice. I saw no lights in the sky. I went home. And I went to bed. And I survived. I did more than survive. I grew. But I did not stop longing for God to be unquestionably real, real to me. I like that. I can echo that. We can echo that. I want to hear God's voice. Nothing will pick us out of depression or the doldrums of life than knowing God spoke to me. But how does He speak? We look in the Bible and there's not one way. There's lots of different ways. There's sometimes God spoke dramatically. Mount Sinai, thunder, lightning, the law. At other times, it wasn't so dramatically. Elijah went to Mount Sinai He thought he was going to have lightning and thunder and fireworks and rather it was a still, small voice. Quiet whisper, some translations say. Sometimes God showed up in visibly dramatic ways. Peter, James, and John saw Jesus and Moses and Elijah transfigured before them. And the raiment of Jesus was brighter than the sun. It was a wow experience. God spoke unmistakably. However, Peter says something I love in 1 Peter chapter 1. He talks about that event. We were with Him on the holy mount and we heard that voice come from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear what he says? I was there. I saw it. I heard it. You know what he says right after that? But we have a more sure word of prophecy, which you do well to take heed to because it's like a light that shines in a dark place. Here's what he's saying. I was there. I heard God speak. I saw God visibly transformed in the person of Jesus Christ. I saw and heard what people rarely see if ever. But I have something even better than what I saw and what I heard and more certain than my own senses or perception And that is the word of prophecy, the word of God. Listen, God still speaks today. The problem is people don't listen like they used to listen to. We have so many voices vying for our attention, poking us on the shoulder, driving us here and there. God still speaks. Every time you open the word of God, if you ask God to speak to you, I believe he will. There comes an illumination of the revelation of God. And it can be powerful. God still speaks. I have a hunch He's speaking tonight. 
I believe he's already started that process and will continue it in our study together. So the mission was clear. Arise, go to Nineveh, or go to, yeah, Nineveh. That great city and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. God calls it in verse 2, a great city, and it says, their wickedness has come up before me. If you lived at the time of Jonah, the name Nineveh would be like today, Baghdad. Ooh, you've heard about that. You know what's going on over there. There's a war going on. That's our enemies, we would say. Or in World War II, Nazi Germany. See, Nineveh was a great city about 220 miles northwest of present-day Baghdad, Iraq. The capital of the ancient Assyrian Empire. God says, Jonah, get up and go. I have a message for you. Now, if you look at the message, and let's do that. Go over to chapter 3. And look at verse 4. We stopped in verse 3. Listen to his message. Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. And he cried out and he said, now listen to his sermon. It's not a long one. Eight words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's no introduction. There's no illustration. There's no three or four points that are alliterative and illustrative. and It's just eight words of judgment. Basically, God's mad at you and you're all doomed. That's eight words in English. It's five words in Hebrew. God's simple. You would think that Jonah would have loved this mission. Jonah, get up. You're going to pronounce judgment and doom on Nineveh. Yes! Hallelujah! I can do that. I'll be a sniper for God. But it says the opposite back in chapter 1. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now that's his mistake. We've looked at the man. We've looked at the mission. It's simple. Go. Here's the message. Eight words, five words in your language, Jonah. Preach it. That's all. But Jonah arose to flee from the presence of the Lord. That's his mistake. Mistake number one. How could a prophet ever think he could leave the presence of the Lord? Isn't it kind of dumb if you're a prophet, if you know anything about God at all, that God isn't confined to one place, that if you went from point A to point B, God doesn't have to follow you. He's already there. If you go on the opposite end of the earth, God's already there. Psalm 139, if I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn and travel to the utmost depths of the sea, behold, there your hand will leave me. Where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I go from your presence? Now that psalm had already been written. Jonah was aware of it. That was in his own prophetic literature. But so how can a prophet think, I'm going to flee from the presence of the Lord? And the direction he goes in. Nineveh from Joppa, that's a coastal town, is about 500 miles due east. Tarshish is 2,000 miles due west. It's as if, I can't prove it, but it's as if Jonah went outside, got his bearings, his little compass or whatever he had back then, and said, okay, God wants me to go there. That means I'm going there. 
four times further than he wants me to go there. Tarshish is on the coast of Gibraltar, modern-day Spain. He goes in the exact opposite direction God tells him to go in four times as long. Now, he doesn't make it that far, but that was his intention, to flee from the presence of the Lord. You know what it means to flee from the presence of the Lord? Literally, it means to flee from standing before God as a servant. I don't think he thinks he's actually going to leave God's presence, but I quit the ministry, he's saying. I'm fleeing from before you as the servant of Yahweh. I quit the ministry. I want to be a non-profit organization, Lord. I don't want to be your spokesman, your prophet. I'm leaving. I'm fleeing from standing before you as a servant. I had a dog like Jonah once. This was a dumb dog. I've had two dogs that I would say are dumb animals. And I love dogs. I've had them all my life. But this dog was, I won't even tell you what breed in case you have one and you'll be offended and write me a note. <laughs> Let's just call this dumb dog A. And this uh, Springer Spaniel was um, <laughs> was named Toby. And uh, we tried to train Toby. And here was Toby's problem. Whenever you'd call Toby to come, Toby would go in the opposite direction which can be quite dangerous if you're outside and there's cars nearby. And one day it happened. There were cars nearby going up and down our little street. And I saw that Toby could be in danger. And so he was heading out that way. And I said, Toby, come. I shouldn't have. Because Toby went for the car. He started charging the car. The car saw the dog put on its brakes, squealed to a stop. But the dog kept running and ran into the car. First time I've ever seen a car get hit by a dog. But kept running, boom, hit the car. He was okay, just a little bit dazed. Right then, I should have renamed him Jonah. He went the opposite direction, and it was harmful to him. Fleeing from the presence of Skip. Here's the question, and this forms the crux of our study tonight. Why? did Jonah do it? Why did he go the opposite direction from where God told him to go? Especially since Jonah had an epic opportunity. Okay, if, if the Lord commissioned you to go to a place on the earth to bring his message. Okay, let's say this. Let's say you're an aspiring evangelist and you're just looking for gigs. You, anybody that lets you preach... Anywhere, you'll, you'll take it. You know, I, I do parties, um, I'll, I'll do churches, and anybody where there's a crowd, I just like to preach. And so you're taking little revivals around the country, and one day, you get a phone call. And out of the blue, on the other end of the phone, Hello, this is Dr. Billy Graham. I'd like you to speak at my crusade in New York. Excuse me? Me? Yeah, that's right, I'd like you to preach. What would you say? Would you go, nah, there's a good show on TV that night. I don't think I want to come. You'd jump for joy. You'd be elated. I remember when I got to go to this part of the world and preach in Baghdad, and we were enemies then. I jumped out of my seat. I got to speak to a a few hundred Iraqi Christians in a church and give an altar call and everything. It was so cool. So here's the question. Jonah, what are you thinking? This is, you're a prophet, remember? You're looking for gigs like this. You're waiting for God to say, do this. Okay. You go in the opposite direction. 
Let me give you a few possibilities. Possibility number one, intimidation. Nineveh is a great city, it says. It's such a great city that imagine being a prophet. You're all alone. You don't have an evangelistic team. You're a lone prophet from a nation that is hated by this superpower. You go to the city whose walls, they tell us, one author, a hundred feet tall, 15 gates, each named after a different god, towers that are a hundred feet taller than the walls, they say 200 feet from the ground up. The walls are wide enough to accommodate chariots racing, three chariots abreast, racing on top of the walls. And to go into that city that hates you, and bring news from a foreign God that they don't recognize that you believe in of doom and judgment could be very intimidating. I don't know if you've ever done any open-air preaching, but some of you who've been around or you've done ministry for a while, you know what that's like, where you go up to a crowd like at the movie theater and they're standing in line for the movie. You've got an audience. They're not going to get out of line. They got their ticket. They've been waiting for a couple hours. You got them. You could stand there and you could preach. And I've known people who have effectively done this. They look for those opportunities. They're not always well loved. (laughs) But it could be very intimidating. Possibility number two, it was just too dangerous. God says, go preach to them because their what has come up before me? Their wickedness. How wicked was Nineveh? Let me tell you a couple little stories from their history. They had a couple different leaders. One was named Ashur Banipal. He was the grandson of Sennacherib, that great warlord who came against the northern kingdom of Israel. And Ashur Banipal uh, had a unique style. He would take his enemy captive, bring them into town, cut off their hands and their lips before killing them, and pile them up. Then another guy by the name of the emperor Tiglath-Pilesar flayed alive his victims, cut off their heads, let the flesh rot off the skull, and then piled up skulls at the entrance to all of the gates of the city. So if you're Jonah and you know not only is this a big town, but they hate you, they're your enemy, and these rulers are used to doing that, you're not too excited to go to town and preach. You know, you want to get ahead in life. You don't want to lose your head doing that so it could be intimidation it could be danger third possibility and this is really the answer it's not because he knew he would fail but he knew he would succeed so you know what what what? yeah jonah didn't want to go to nineveh not because he thought he would fail at the mission but because he knew by god's grace he would succeed at it i'll prove that to you Turn with me over to chapter 3, verse 10. Then God saw their works. This is after he preaches that little short five Hebrew worded message. God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them. He did not do it. God was merciful. God was forgiving. Now look at this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became very angry. And so he prayed to the Lord and he said, Ah, Lord, 
Was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. (laughs) You hear that? Oh, Lord, I knew that you would forgive the very people I hate. You're so merciful and so gracious and you love to forgive. And I want them dead. And I knew you were like this. That's why he fled. He said so. You say, I don't get this. Well, let me help you understand in a more, though it's not modern for a lot of us, but a more modern illustration. Picture World War II, Nazi Germany, Adolf Hitler. The word of the Lord comes to a New York rabbi and says, Arise, go to Nazi Germany and proclaim a message. And I might just be merciful to Adolf Hitler and the Nazis if they turn. You might read something like, And the rabbi went down to Manhattan and he got on a boat to flee to Honolulu from the presence of the Lord. You say, well, I can understand that. Well, that's the picture here. But this prophet knew that God was merciful, God was gracious, and uh, he fled. It's a shame. It's tragic. When we view an opportunity as an inconvenience, It's a shame when we view an opportunity God sets before us as an inc- I don't want to do that. I have to get up early. I have to actually be gone all Saturday to do that. It's an opportunity. Oh, it's an inconvenience. A lot of it is perspective, isn't it? You hear about the three people at the Grand Canyon. One was an artist. One was a preacher. One was a cowboy. They looked down in that big chasm and The artist, being an artist, said, what a beautiful picture to paint. The preacher said, what a gorgeous example of the handiwork of Almighty God. The cowboy looked in the Grand Canyon. He saw it a little bit differently. He said, what a terrible place to lose a cow. (laughs) They all saw the same thing. They all reacted differently. Jonah saw Nineveh not as an opportunity, but as Big hole, big inconvenience, terrible place to lose a cow. He didn't want to do it, so he fled to go from the presence of the Lord. I just want to stop here before I finish out the story and we pray. A couple lessons I've gleaned so far from it. Number one, it's hard for us to see other people blessed. Especially if you don't like them. And God decides to abundantly bless them. What right does God have to bless them when you're here? Here's Jonah. Wait a minute. You're supposed to bless Jews, not Ninevites, especially forgive them and their whole people is spared after what they've done to their enemies, including Jewish people. It's hard to see other people blessed. Paul said that we... Weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. Have you discovered that it's easier to weep with those that weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice? 
See, when somebody's weeping, it means they're suffering. And if you're not suffering and they are, oh, you can, I, honey, let's pray. What's going on? Let's, let's take it before the Lord. After all, all you have to do is be inconvenienced enough to stop and pray. They're suffering. You're not. You'll enter in a little bit to that. But when somebody else rejoices because God blessed them. Okay, let's say you've been driving around a car for 20 years. Same car. You got 450 billion miles on it. And it's going, and you prayed forever for a new car. And and somebody comes in, they've been a Christian a month. They're not even all that good. And they say, brother, God just gave me a new car. And you go, hallelujah. Glory to God. You're not too excited about that. Be a lot easier for you to weep with them than to rejoice with them. It's hard to see other people blessed. Another lesson, bitterness blinds us to the truth. Bitterness blinds us to the truth. If you harbor bitterness, anger, or prejudice, you can't see reality very well. Here's Jonah, a prophet, the guy who should be easily commissioned He's so blinded by his prejudice, he doesn't see the opportunity, he sees the inconvenience. Third lesson, and that's the rest of the book of Jonah. You can run, but you can't hide. Oh, you want to try to run from God? Guess what? God not only owns a cattle on a thousand hills, all them big fish in the sea, they also get his commands as well. And so you can run from God, but... You know, some people have called the Holy Spirit the hound of heaven. You can run away from God all you want, but here's the truth. God loves you. And God will come after you. Because God loves you enough to pin you down and show you mercy. That's really the theme of the rest of the book of Jonah. The mercy of God, not just to the Ninevites, but to the prodigal prophet named Jonah. So, go back to chapter 1. We're about done. You've seen the man, the mission, the mistake, the misery. Now, you might think, okay, the misery. I know where you're going with this. He goes out to sea, storm erupts, they throw him over sea. That's the misery. Yeah, we all know that. We all know that there are consequences to his sin, that he gets thrown overboard and thinks he's going to die. A whale comes and swallows him up. That's too obvious. There's something more than that. There's two things I want you to notice, and I'm closing with this. The misery of Jonah is twofold. Number one, he went down. He went down. Look in verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Go to Nineveh, that great city. Cry out against it. Their wickedness have come before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah went down, obviously. He went down geographically to Tarshish. He went down into the boat. He went down later on into the water. He went down into the belly of the fish. He went down, down, down. Anybody in the world, 
would have applauded Jonah for making the decision he made and would have said, Jonah, you're going up in life. You're becoming upwardly mobile. You're becoming free from the restraints of your religious upbringing. You're going up. You have freedom to express yourself. Anytime you go away from God, you go down, 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 down. Always. You never go up. You always go down. Jonah went down. Of course, the captain aboard the ship and his shipmates had no idea that this prodigal prophet would cause them a lot of problems. They found out that he was a servant of God and disobeying that God, the God of Israel, they got scared. You know, sometimes people are superstitious. Quick little story. I was on an airplane one time. I'm sitting in my seat. I'm reading something. The plane is boarding. And uh, this sweet little gal comes on with her friend. And she stops. She goes, oh, Pastor Skip, I go to your church. I go, nice to meet you. And she said, oh, I hate to fly. I'm so scared of flying. But I see you sitting here. And I feel at ease now. I feel such peace. Like it's going to be okay. Pastor skips aboard. Now I didn't say this to her, but I thought, boy, she better hope my life's right with God. Cause I'm thinking of the story of Jonah. To have a prodigal preacher aboard the ship or the plane isn't necessarily a good thing. <laughs> Jonah went down. Second consequence. He paid the fare. See where it says that in the text? Jonah paid the fare. Okay, he paid money, didn't he? He paid money for the ticket. He bought the ticket. He dished out the money. Did he ever reach his destination? Never. So he paid for something that he never got. He had to fork out the money, but he never reached his destination. When you disobey God, you never reach your destination. You're never satisfied, and you will pay the fare. Flip the coin. When you go God's way, you will always get to the destination and God will pick up the tab. Now Jonah illustrates the first part of that principle. He paid the fare, never made it. Let me tell you who illustrates the second part of the principle. It's a woman in the Old Testament, the mother of Moses. Her name is Jochebed. Remember Jochebed? Jochebed and her husband have a little baby named Moses. It's illegal to have Hebrew babies, boys. They get killed in Egypt. This baby starts crying a lot. Moses' mom, Jochebed, doesn't know what to do. So she says, Lord, it's in your hands. And she prays and puts the baby in a little boat, sends it down the Nile River. And there in the bulrushes, it starts crying. And Pharaoh's daughter hears it and looks, oh, look, it's a little Hebrew child. And a girl nearby says, it is a Hebrew baby. Would you like me to get a Woman from the Hebrew camp to come and nurse this child? Pharaoh's daughter said, yes. So she happens to get Jochebed. So Moses' mother, who released Moses, comes, stands before Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter, listen to what she says. Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay you wages. How would you like that, mom? For the government to say, oh, you had a baby. I like this baby. Hey, if you nurse this child and it grows up well, I'm going to pay you all through this child's life. So, going God's way, you always reach your destination and God picks up the tab. You go your way, you never reach your destination, and you will pay the fare. So, the man, the mission, the mistake... 
the misery. We don't have enough time, but can I just squeeze a fifth in? And I'll, I'll, I'll let you go with it. The mercy of Jonah. Look at verse 4. Just, just the first few words. But the Lord. Stop right there. But the Lord. That's the rest of the book. You know, it's bad. But Jonah. Like, I'm going my way. But the Lord. So, I don't know who you are, or what you're into, or if you're running away from God, but you might put your foot down and go, I'm not going God's way, and it's, but you are going to do this. But the Lord. God is merciful to chase you down, pin you down, and say, okay, when you cry uncle, and you will, I'm going to use you. I'm going to be merciful to you and give you a second chance and a third chance so that you can give other people a second and a third chance. That's mercy. Can I tell you something? You need it. I need it. A famous politician went to a photographer to get his picture taken. The photographer gave him the proofs. The politician looked at the proofs. He said, these are ugly. And he went back into the store and he says, these pictures don't do me justice. And the photographer said, excuse me, but with a face like yours, you don't need justice, you need mercy. (laughs) Jonah, with a heart like yours, you don't want justice, buddy. You need mercy. And isn't that true about all of us? Isn't it true what St. Augustine once said? Oh, Lord, we are all restless until we find our rest in Thee. You may be restless tonight. You may be running from God. Or you may be wallowing in self-pity because you tried to be used by once and you gave it up and you failed and so you quit and can God ever use you again? He's after you. How about in the last song of worship tonight, you say, Uncle, I surrender. I'm yours. Go for it, God. What Nineveh have you got for me? Let's bow our hearts. Lord, we've looked at a man who is just a man. A literal human being who lived and who had prejudice and was bigoted and had his own will. You sent him on a mission which he rejected, made a grave mistake. He was so miserable, leaving, floating in the sea, in the belly of a great monstrous fish. And then even more miserable when you forgave a town and mercifully washed away their iniquity because they repented in sackcloth. Lord, there's a lot of lessons for us in that. We just simply want to be your men and women who listen to your voice and say, Yes, Lord. Yes, yes, Lord. Amen. That's what we want, to be those kind of people who readily listen, quickly respond. I would pray, Father, for anyone tonight who's not fully surrendered to you, either in salvation as an unbeliever or in sanctification as a believer. If any here are running from you, that they wouldn't leave the building tonight without responding to the will of God by receiving Christ as Lord. And anyone who is running from your will as a believer, some ministry, some function, that there would be a surrender. Because that's where the peace is. That's where the mercy is experienced. By from the heart doing the will of God. And I pray that for all of us.
Make us pliable in your hands. In 